everyone, and welcome to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder. I'm a senior director at CFGI. And this is the program where we dig deeper to understand what really matters most in business. Today, we're going to be talking about a lot of things related to entrepreneurship with regard to early stage and later stage enterprises. And I'm pleased to welcome my guest, John Pennant, who's a partner in charge of technology and life science practice at Eisner Amper. John, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for inviting me here today. Uh, my pleasure. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, and then we'll jump into the conversation. Sure, sure. Um, I've been in the public accounting business for my entire career, about 35 years. Um, started at, a, at one firm and have been at Eisner Amper now for about 17 years. I head our technology and life sciences practice for the firm as a whole, so I have responsibilities for all of our offices around the country and all the services that we offer from early stage um, uh, outsourced accounting services and tax to audits and IPOs and M&A transactions and kind of everything in between. So it's uh, fun watching the practice grow and uh, watching entrepreneurs uh, thrive through the process. Right. And you're in charge of, <clears throat> excuse me, life sciences and technology. But I thought for the purposes of this program, maybe rather than divide it by industry, because there's probably some overlap in the way the businesses conduct themselves, to talk about it in terms of the stage of development. Okay. So let's, let's start with the early stage uh, entities, if we could, first. Uh, with regard to early stage innovation, uh, what are you seeing most frequently these days? How are, how are companies differentiating themselves and being innovative? So uh, entrepreneurship as a, as a category has obviously been super popular. Uh, it's one of the fastest growing uh, university programs um, uh, kind of across the, across the world. And so people are really uh, looking to <clears throat> kind of have their own innovation uh, and, and create their own, their own way in life, I think. So um, you're seeing that in technology, um, all different types of things from the uh, communications, payments, um, e-commerce, um, you know, just you know, connected patients, connected with doctors, uh, all kind of all across the spectrum. Um, I think a lot of the challenge that entrepreneurs have in that regard is to try to find up something that's truly disruptive and truly different. Because uh, a lot of stuff that's just slightly different than something else that's out there, the big challenge is to get something that's truly different. Um, that's the ones that are being successful. Um, but I don't think anybody wants to work for the man anymore, so everybody would rather uh, be an entrepreneur. Yeah, so everybody probably thinks that their thing is the greatest new thing. So how do we determine or how do you determine uh, what really is that thing that really will differentiate them and not just you know, an also-ran idea? You know, one of the questions I always ask, and I see um, angel investors, and I also do a little bit of angel investing myself through Mid-Atlantic BioAngels. Um, one, one of the questions that we always ask entrepreneurs is to, to describe your competition. Um, and almost, um, if, you hear the, if you hear the answer, we have no competition, it's almost a complete shutdown because everything has competition. Uh, it may not even be from a source that you're thinking of. It may not even be something using technology. It could be something totally outside that realm. Um, but, that's, uh, but there's competition everywhere. So I think identifying who your competition is and why, what makes you different from that is, I think, really important. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny, in, in my world, in valuation consulting, a lot of times as we're working with clients and we ask them, who are their, their publicly traded peers, their, their companies that they might aspire to be when they grow up, if you will, if they're earlier stage? And yeah, more often than not, we hear that same story, you know. We're, we're unique. There's really nobody who's exactly like us. Right, right. Yeah, there's somebody who's very close, and there's somebody who's probably 
uh, taking the same path that you are and is probably even farther ahead somewhere in the world. So entrepreneurship is now a global phenomenon for sure. Uh, there are smart people everywhere and um, that I think that's going to continue. So I think you have to really be aware of the landscape around you uh, to, to, to try to figure out how to um, how to differentiate yourself. Yeah. And that causes a lot of companies to have to pivot um, you know, as they go through that analysis. And they see maybe we're not quite so special, or there are, you know, there are other people who are maybe farther ahead than we are, uh, and it causes them to pivot into a slightly different direction. And I think that's, um, I think that's a sign of a good entrepreneur to be aware of your surroundings and adjust uh, to to uh, try to attack a market that you could um, you could succeed in. Yeah, for sure. It's also a good sign of a game day coach in the NFL. Absolutely. <laughs> adjust on the fly. Yeah. You you allude to challenges uh, in, in that pivoting kind of an idea and. Certainly for early stage companies, there's a whole boatload of challenges. Everything is a challenge as you're doing it for the first time. Uh, building a team, attracting financing, the whole host of them. What are the ones that you see right now that uh, are the largest challenges for entrepreneurs? So one of the challenges definitely is building a team. Um, so, you know, we, we see so many uh, organizations at the start, you know, kind of really going through bootstrapping as their financing strategy. And so they really don't have a lot of money. Um, so as a result, you know, they're trying to attract a team, um, getting some consultants, getting some people to do things for, for stock options or other things like that. Uh, but truly building a team of believers is a really hard thing to do. Um, but I think it's really critical. So I think, you know, we, we encourage entrepreneurs to uh, find advisors, you know, create an advisory board, um, even if they're kind of unpaid positions, um, you know, maybe you can give them a little bit of equity to help them uh, get on board, uh, to build a team of people. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you think of what an investor is going to look at. Um, you know, the team has to be able to execute the technology. So you always invest in the team first. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, again, you're, we're finding teams um, from around the world. So if, if they can find some consultants to help work on their development side uh, overseas, um, certainly that's very popular thing to do. Um, you, know, you pay them as you can uh, at the very, very beginning until you can kind of formalize those arrangements and then you know you take care of them down the road. Um, so I think that that's, that certainly is one of the challenges is finding the team um, and finding some advisors. I think the advisors help to be, build credibility for the organization uh, because again, if ultimately you're going to try to raise money, uh, there has to be a belief that this team uh, has enough uh, horsepower, enough execution skills, um, and they could actually, you know, they could actually complete the project. Yeah, deliver on the promise. Yep. Yeah. So a lot of times when you hear about funding, entrepreneurs look to Shark Tank as kind of the model for how to think about a attracting early stage investing. And there's a lot of great things on Shark Tank for sure. But mm -hmm. when you start to talk about dilution uh, and giving up equity in your business, how important is that? And and how should owners and entrepreneurs be thinking about that? You know, it sort of reminds me of a, of a story. I have a, a, it's a client of ours who uh, was on Shark Tank, and uh, she had gone through the process. And at the end, she said, at the end of the day, you realize it's a TV show. It's really not a, a venture capital pitch day. Um, it's a TV show. Yeah. So they, they wanted to put together a particular uh, story. They had her kind of re um, uh, reset how the company was put together a little bit uh, to make the story a little bit more interesting for TV. Um, and even though she, quote unquote, received funding from the show, she actually never did receive any funding because in due diligence, they actually decided not to invest. So, hmm. um, but it's a TV show. So yeah. it, was, it was cool and it's a nice piece that they have and, uh, and all that. So, 
um, but it, but it was uh, it just sort of uh, it never worked out from the financing perspective. Um, but to get to your question on sort of dilution, I mean, ultimately, um, dilution is inevitable. Um, I think companies who do try to hang on to too much ownership uh, and not give enough opportunity for investors to make money, I think is really short-sighted. Um, you know, investors are doing this to make money, not to help you achieve your goal, but for them to make money. So it has to be a win-win for everybody. Um, you want to be it's, you want to be smart about it. So you know, I kind of believe in the concept of um, raising enough money to accomplish the objective at hand. Meet, meet the next um, milestone, the critical milestone, which you can then use as a value inflection point to jump to the next level of, of, uh, of valuation. Um, so I think you, know, you have to be really smart about it. Um, and, and from my perspective, when I see a company talking about um, trying to raise money, to me, if they don't have a really clear plan as to how much money they need, and what they're going to be accomplishing with that amount of money, then it's probably not an investable company. Um, you have to have real crystal clarity on what it's going to take to achieve that goal. Yeah. John, for folks who are watching and listening and want to learn more about you or how to work with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, so you can certainly reach me through the Eisner Amper website. Uh, if you go to, um, uh, to the professionals uh, page there, you can find my my. Um, uh, the link to my website, or if you go to our technology or life sciences um, landing page, you'll, you, you can contact me through that as well. Uh, certainly, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Yep, for sure. So you talk about Shark Tank, and yes, it's a TV show, but somewhere in the investment world, whether it's TV or otherwise, right, entrepreneurs have to catch the attention of an investor. They've got to present something that's going to make them not only just different, but investable. What's important to investors? So it's sort of it's sort of interesting. So this past week um, was the, uh, the the traditional J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference Week in San Francisco. Of course, it was all virtualized this uh, this year, and uh, there's probably a, you know a half a dozen concurrent conferences that go on uh, uh, the same week in, in San Francisco. Again, this year all virtual, um, and I participated in a number of those conferences. Uh, some in my role as as an Eisner Amper. Uh, employee and some is a role from uh, Mid-Atlantic BioAngels. And so I sat through a, uh, a couple dozen 20 or 30 minute presentations. Um, at, the end of the, at the end of the week, I can't remember what any of them did. Um, it's just too many. But I took enough notes. I didn't take a lot of notes, but I took enough notes to basically give them a, you know, a smiley face, a frowny face, or a neutral face. Uh, and that's really for the follow-up. Yeah. So it's the first couple minutes of the discussion that I make that decision. Um, so the rest of the 20 minutes, I'm listening, but I'm not really listening. I'm not, I'm not really understanding it. This, it's just too much volume. Um, but it's really that first couple of moments that captures the attention. So it's sort of the quality of the team. Um, it's, the, it's the opportunity. And it's the TAM, the total addressable market. So are you trying to solve a big problem? Does this look like a unique opportunity? And do I think this team is credible? Um, if, if I can kind of get through that um, and I kind of put the smiley face next to that company, um, then that's somebody I want to follow up with. Um, if I don't get that in the first couple minutes, um, you know, I, I, it's really hard to get my attention back. Um, and I think a lot of investors are sort of that same way, you know, really short attention span. Um, but you've got to, you have to have something that's a really unique, unique item, uh, a nice big addressable market. So that TAM is really important. 
because um, you want to try to be solving a big problem so that an investor can have the opportunity to make a big return. Yeah, so let's talk about total addressable market just for a minute here. From the valuation lens, uh, working with earlier stage companies who, when we ask them for a forecast, a lot of times they'll shortcut it and they'll say something like, well, the total addressable market is X, and if we can just get 1% of that addressable market, and that, yeah, that's a, a little bit lazy, it's a little bit of a cop-out, um, not a whole lot of rigor in that either. Right. So in the just five minutes or so that we have left in this segment, how would you talk about folks who are thinking about their their streamlined forecast as a so-called percentage of total addressable market? Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a really big challenge, and we'll see we'll see companies go and uh, they'll put together like marketing studies or have marketing studies commissioned to try to understand um, who is currently addressing the market and who has what kind of market share. And then they try to figure out what pieces they can pull, kind of pull away from that uh, as a result of being able to launch their product. So I kind of like the you know the bottoms up approach of saying how do I you know how do I get to that process? Uh, one of the things I think that's really hard about putting together those projections is you know thinking about the time frame to hire a salesperson, train a salesperson, um, get them to uh, make some contacts to uh, nurture those contacts and then turn that into revenue, that's a long time. So when you see companies saying, well, you know, I'm going to hire 20 salespeople and that's going to result in us being able to attract uh, and grow the market share, um, you know, by the end of this year, you you kind of think of that and say, it doesn't sound like a credible story. It's really hard to find people. Um, It's hard to get them to leave where they are um, and, and to be productive at your shop. So it takes a long time to get there. Um, so I think, but I think going from the bottoms up, I think is really important. Um, I think one of the things that we see in like a diligence perspective quite often is uh, a, a, an investor will say, or like a private equity group who's maybe looking at a, a technology company will say, I think I can drive sales through this organization because of other contacts that we have, other companies we have. We could piece things together and we can drive business through this organization. And then comes another challenge, which is really understanding what is the fully burdened cost to deliver those services. Um, so a lot of times, you know, companies aren't really thinking about, you know, all the cost it takes to deliver the services efficiently and effectively. Um, and as a result, like gross profit as, a, as a, an accounting term um, kind of gets kind of gets lost in the shuffle, but ultimately becomes a really important measure to try to figure out, you know, if we can drive volume to your to your business, how much money can we make on it? Yeah, John, I'm going to try and do it. One more sneak one in lightning round. 60 <clears throat> seconds. Best tips for entrepreneurs to save some headaches down the road? Um, build a great team. Uh, put your put your uh, ownership in place very quick, very early. So if you want to have some early partners, get them signed up early. Uh, document that clearly. Uh, keep good records on that. Um, Kind of build a good culture. Um, determine the culture that you want to have for the organization and stick to that culture throughout. Yeah, great stuff. And each one of those is another great segment for our next uh, Behind the Numbers show. So hopefully you'll come back and talk more about those. But we're going to take a quick commercial break here. John, you sit tight. You watching and listening, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on Behind the Numbers after this quick break. 130 miles of beautiful beaches. Solid rock. And everything in between. Now that's New Jersey. 
Plan your New Jersey trip at visitnj.org. Waves of fun. Nights of excitement. And a trail of memories. Now that's New Jersey. Welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we're talking with John Pennant from Eisner Amper. John, we had a good chat in the first segment where we were talking about early stage enterprises. Now we're going to shift to the later stage and going from that early stage into later stages of development. So let's let's first talk about the scaling. How do we get there? So from entrepreneurs who are starting out with these smaller businesses, what's the key to success in scaling to get to that next level? So there's a couple things I think that are are really important. So uh, typically companies will have maybe some pilot programs that they might run with some organizations where they'll they'll put their technology in place with those organizations, um, get some feedback, um, maybe tweak things a little bit. But the goal would be to sort of get that as a referenceable account. So if you can kind of get that account, um, work out the bugs, um, get them to renew uh, and sign on again and be a referenceable account to attract other companies, that's really important. Um, one of the things that you think about is, um, like, what are those key metrics to scale? So, so certainly, like, in the technology world, uh, churn, really important. Uh, the more your customers are churning, obviously, that's a worse sign, right? So you want companies to sign up, like the product, renew the product for the next year, the next cycle, add more, add more seats to the license, add more users to the technology. Um, so I think learn, you know, getting through those early learnings, uh, fixing the mistakes, uh, improving the product on a continuous basis, I think that's really important. Uh, you're seeing a lot of technology companies now having dedicated um, customer success teams. So their job is to make sure that they're talking to the customer on a routine basis. You know, is the technology doing what it's supposed to be doing? Is it, is it achieving your goals? What is it not achieving? Is there something we could add to it? <clears throat> and then kind of continuously refine the product. Uh, so the product development is a continuous process along those ways. Um, and then just really working those channels uh, to see how do, we, uh, how do we grow that? How do we add companies to the top of the funnel? and kind of work them down into uh, customers down the way. Yeah. So. so in the early stage, the, building the team was important, right? The core, if you will. So now as we're starting to grow and expand and scale our business, we presumably need to add more people, more employees. So what's your advice for folks in, in building the larger team after assembling the core? So I think it, it still gets back a little bit to culture. So you need to have people who are, who are coming from the mindset of the same culture that you're trying to build. Um, you know, or uh, companies, it, once, it, once they kind of establish that identity and that culture, I think it's really important to stay true to that. Um, and I think where you deviate away from that, I think a lot of problems happen. So you have to try to find people who are hungry and looking at things the same way you are, um, want to grow the business, want to be part of the, of the success of the organization. So we're certainly seeing companies 
uh, in the technology world, helping to incentivize people by you know using stock options and things like that to give them an ownership um, sure. mindset and an ownership mentality. And I think that's really important, not only from a compensation and ultimately creating value, but really kind of creating an all-in concept. So we're all in on this. Yeah. The concept of internationalization, is that an important thing for these scaling businesses? And can it simply be achieved by having an online presence, as we've now learned during this global pandemic, that you don't necessarily need to be there to do business there? Uh, that's Well, that's certainly correct. You don't need to be there, um, you know. Myself, I haven't uh, haven't left the house very much in the uh, in the last uh, nine months or so, um, but I think international is more than just having uh, people on the ground or salespeople visiting customers. It's being part of that uh, part of that culture as well. So we're certainly seeing on the technology side, development is being done um, around the world. So there are development shops that are set up. Yeah, there might be software developers in Eastern Europe, in India, uh, in the biotech world. You'll see China, India, many other places where the work is being done. And so you have a dedicated team of scientists um, with the skill sets you need because the skill sets are everywhere now. Um, and I think on the customer side, um, you need to have sort of that touch point. So it's really hard to do everything remote. Um, you need to have some partners. So whether you use uh, channel partners to help you go to market, um, so you use like a third party to help uh, promote your products in a particular marketplace, um, or you have some local salespeople or, or country directors to help kind of drive that, that side of the business. I still think that's important uh, that you have that presence. Um, certainly we're seeing in our, in our business, most of our technology clients, almost all of them have, a, have an internationalization element to their business, uh, whether it's on the development side or the sales side. Um, it's, just, it's just critical to grow the business. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about funding. So for the early stage guys, early stage companies, we talked about having a unique differentiator in a large addressable market. What attracts investors into these companies now as they start to mature? So uh, once you once you kind of get to the point where you've got to launch products, now you're starting to think about some of those scaling metrics. So you're looking at things like churn. Um, you're looking at things like growth in the marketplace, the number the number of users increasing, the revenue per user, uh, the revenue per license, things like that in, in, on the software side of things. Um, so you're looking at it ultimately as you know, can I sell more products? to a growing customer base. So can I increase my revenue per customer? Um, and can I grow that overall customer base? Can I add on other products and things like that? So as you start to scale, you start to think about uh, new product development, uh, products I could acquire. You know, can I put things together to create a more holistic offering to, to our customers so that I have a more complete package that would be more attractive to them? So those are the types of things that you think about as, as you're growing that business. What's the cash flow requirements going to be to get there? So if I have to continue to invest in product development and sales and marketing, do, how, many, how many rounds of financing do I need to invest in the company? So you'll see companies raising their you know, Series B, Series C, Series D round. Um, and that's, but at some point, you have to actually become profitable. Yeah. Um, so you know, we, uh, you know, we, we always kind of think about, like, what is that point where you hit the break-even level from the cash flow, cash flow perspective, and you no longer need to go back to your venture capital for, for, um, for, more, for more money? Yeah, that path to profitability for sure. John, for folks who want to learn more about you or connect with you, how can they do that? 
Uh, so the best way to reach me is through the Eisner Amper website. And if you go to the professionals, you can find my, my bio there. Or if you go to the technology and life sciences uh, landing page, you can find my contact information there. Yeah. So, John, what are some of the things that folks driving these now scaling businesses need to watch out for? What are the risks that they're taking on? And, what, and how can you save them some heartburn from what you've seen from others take on? So you think of a couple of war stories of, of things that didn't work so well. Um, so we had, as an example, we had a client who had uh, issued stock options to um, almost all of their employees, you know, probably 100 employees. They're going through a transaction, an M&A transaction with a public entity, so they have to have an audit done for the first time. And the stock option accounting uh, and record keeping that they had done was sort of like a where's Waldo. So... Um, the employee said I had 500 options at a, at a dollar. Uh, the corporate record said you had 300 at two dollars. The board approved 600 at 30 cents. Um, just a complete where's Waldo of, of what actually happened. So, so kind of keeping really good records, uh, memorializing all your transactions. Really important if you have founders and really early um, key key employees that if you're going to give them equity, give it to them really early. Uh, document it and put it in your Dropbox or whatever storage system you're using. Um, because if you don't, the ramifications, like in the example of that case, they had to go back to longtime employees and say, we're taking back your options and giving you a much less attractive option because um, otherwise you're going to trip really bad tax issues and things like that. Yeah, so that doesn't end well. <laughs> that doesn't end well. So it created a lot of, uh, instead of goodwill, it created a lot of ill will. Sure. Um, th so that's for sure. Uh, you think about other things just in terms of, you know, kind of keeping good track of compliance. So in the software world, um, many, many, many companies are somewhere behind on sales tax. Um, so it's, it's a super complicated area. People like to bury their head in the sand in that uh, topic because it's really hard and confusing and, you know, it takes a lot of effort. So I think, you know, that's an example of, of another thing where um, you want to try to get ahead of that early on. And just kind of having good governance, good, uh, um, good record keeping, um, good contacts uh, uh, in terms of li library type functions with your, your sales arrangements and all those types of things. Yeah. John, we probably have 90 seconds or so to go here. So I'm going to be really unfair and ask you to condense a response. But the end game ultimately is some form of exit, whether it's an IPO, whether it's a sale, or now SPAC is a popular way of, of getting out there into the market. What's, what are you seeing and, and what are your recommendations for folks who are contemplating an exit? Um, so come up with a reasonable valuation. Um, you know, have, have, a, have, a, um, have, have an objective that makes sense so everybody can win. Um, in the public marketplace, you know, super hot, as everybody knows right now, biotech, large technology companies, um, they've created really big marketplaces. So, um, you know, I think there's some great opportunities there. Uh, but you've got to put together a great team, a great story, uh, be able to meet your objectives and uh, meet, your, meet the milestones that you're promising people. Yep. Awesome. John, thank you so much for joining us today on Behind the Numbers. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dave. Uh, it's a pleasure here. <coughs> so thank you for watching and listening Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we've been talking with John Pennett, the partner in charge of technology and life sciences practice at Eisner Amper. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so you can stay in touch with us and know all that we're up to. Thanks again, everybody. Until next time, take care.